Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. Good evening, everybody. Good evening to you and welcome. Thank you for coming tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I just want to say before we start that I really hope that you find something in this evening, one thing, maybe two, um, that will help you um, follow the Lord with greater joy. If that happens tonight, we've served each other well. To, uh, to find that one thing that say, ah, that spark that might help you follow the Lord with greater joy. I tell you, my preparation for this did that for me, for sure. Uh, the, the letter to the Philippians is extraordinarily rich. Short, it's only four chapters, but it's an extraordinary uh, letter of Paul's. So, we push away. Letter to the Philippians. Philippi was a Roman province in Macedonia, Greece. And actually, it was founded by Philip of Macedonia, whom you may not recognize, but was the father of Alexander the Great. So this is an ancient place. But it became a, a Roman a colony uh, in one, uh, 167 B.C. And uh, it was a thoroughly Roman city in Macedonia. And its inhabitants took great pride, as did Paul, in having Roman citizenship. That was an extraordinarily valuable commodity to have. And the Philippians were very pleased to have Roman citizenship. However, there's a great irony because St. Paul is telling them that their citizenship is in heaven. You know, like that, uh, that which they prized the most, he started to shift for them. He only used it when he thought it would be to his advantage by appealing to Caesar. Um, it's amazing that we have Paul's letters, you know. Uh, I, I wonder sometimes if we don't just take that for granted. What an extraordinary gift that is that folks archive those letters and save them for us because they're the earliest testimonies we have about Jesus Christ. Paul was, was dead at least five years before the first gospel was written. So the gospels aren't the primary source that we have about our Jesus. It's Paul and his, uh, his own enthusiasm, his own response to the gift of the Spirit within him. Uh, and Philippi was the very first church that Paul founded in Europe. Uh, this letter, by the way, is probably two letters and maybe three that they, they may have been combined. Uh, the reason that scholars say that is that it's right around chapter 3, verse 2. It just immediately shifts from one topic to an entirely different topic. And so they're sent, the sense of it is, of the scholars, is that this is two letters, maybe three. Uh, Paul wrote this, we'll call it this letter, uh, while he was imprisoned. And where he was imprisoned isn't clear either. Uh, for years, folks assumed that it was in Rome that he was imprisoned. But others have thought it was Caesarea, uh, the seacoast city where the, 
where Pilate's headquarters would have been. Uh, most likely, and most scholars today, believe that Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus. And they think that for two, two reasons. First of all, there was a Roman praetorium in Ephesus, a Roman guard, and there also was a Roman judiciary in Ephesus. But also it is on, it's, a, it's an easy jump from Ephesus to Philippi. So the best sense we have now is that Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus when he wrote this, this letter. Uh, what we do know for sure is that his life was really in jeopardy in this imprisonment. It, it was touch and go whether he was going to live or die. And that's reflected in his reflections in the letter to the Philippians. He writes to these Philippians whom he loved dearly. You know, Paul attached himself to all the communities that he evangelized uh, in Ephesus and other places in Asia Minor. Even the Corinthians, who were out of control half the time, uh, carousing and, you know, it was a, a busy crossroads there. He had a special love for all of these people. But the Philippians uh, and the Thessalonians seemed to have a very special place in Paul's heart. And one of the reasons that he was grateful for the Philippians is that they were very generous to him and to his mission. Uh, he's writing a thank you note, you know, not dissimilar from the uh, thank you notes your mother's made you all write. Uh, it's a thank you note for a gift that the Philippians had sent to him when he was in prison, probably in Ephesus, brought by one of the uh, leaders in the early church in Philippi, uh, Epaphroditus. Uh, and Paul is thanking them for this gift. They did it on other occasions as well. The Philippians sent him uh, a gift when he was in Thessalonica as well. And uh, ultimately, it looks like he, they did that when he was in Rome. It's also called a friendship letter. And one of the, one of the interesting pieces of scholarship that tippled to that was that a friendship letter uh, always had in it a declaration of uh, mutual enemies. You can't help but think about today's circumstances as well that very often people of a like mind will start to talk about those who are not of a like mind. Uh, but that was, that was part of the, the ritual of a friendship letter. And Paul does identify uh, common opponents or enemies that he and the Philippians shared. But because it, it, it looks a little strange in a thank you letter that he starts to identify those who are people who are contrary and have a contrary uh, agenda to the ones that, uh, that the Philippians have been given. There are four opponents that Paul identifies in this letter to the Philippians. First of all, those who proclaim Jesus for selfish reasons, you know, for ambition or for status, uh, that, that it's about them it's not really about Jesus in the end. Uh, secondly, those who were trying to intimidate uh, 
the Philippians. And that came from a couple of different quarters. It came from some of the Roman citizens who were pagans, and it came from some of the uh, uh, folks from the synagogue, and also the Judaizers, which we'll say a little bit more about in a few moments. Third, uh, the people whom call, Paul called the dogs who mutilate the flesh. What he's referring to there is circumcision. Um, and that would most likely be, could have been one of two groups. It could have been the Jews in Philippi or the Jews who became Christians but were referred to as Judaizers. Now, those folks believed that Christians had to follow the Mosaic law, including circumcision. So Paul refers to them as the dogs who mutilate the flesh. And the fourth group is the group of enemies of the cross of Christ, those who are um, watering the gospel that, that not to include the cross of Christ. Uh, in referring to probably the Judaizers who were pushing the Mosaic Law, uh, you'll notice it comes in a reading a couple of times during the liturgical year, uh, the three-year cycle. Um, he talks about those who glory in their shame. He's referring again to circumcision. Or those whose God is their belly. And what he meant by their God is their belly is that they put their stock in uh, following the dietary laws in the Torah as being more important than following the gospel. So Paul was pretty incensed about this, and especially with his own background as a Pharisee and as a highly regarded Pharisee of the law, as an expert in the law that these who were less skilled than he was are imposing on the new Christians the, the Torah, the whole of, the, the, of the, um, the Jewish responsibility. There are a handful of, of reasons why Paul wrote this letter. The first one, as I mentioned to you, is a thanksgiving letter for the gift that they had sent him in prison. Most importantly, what he's interested in doing is fostering their growth in Christ. Their growth in Christ. He wants to move them beyond, you know, the initial excitement of having been baptized or having been welcomed into the community of the Lord to really light the fire, to really uh, wet that hunger that becomes deeper and deeper to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow into uh, the mind of Christ, which we'll say a little bit more about. He also is urging them, which has always been a challenge and the task of Christian communities, to spread the gospel, not to hoard it, not to feel comforted by the gospel that, well, we all know the gospel, and boy, isn't it great. You know, here we are supporting each other, which is wonderful. It's not the end, that the gospel imperative is to announce it, is to witness to it, is to help others to come to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the also 
also, uh, one of the things he does is call for unity. It's not real clear, except in one case, what the problem was in Philippians, and in the Philippian community, that Paul was addressing. It probably was the Judaizers. There also were two women who are named in the gospel who had some kind of, uh, some kind of conflict. These were women who were leaders in the community, uh, who may have led the Eucharist, for example, in the community, but they had a problem with each other, and Paul, in effect, is saying, solve it. Solve it, that the unity of the, of the community, the unity of the church is at risk here. This epistle is referred to as the epistle of joy, which is ironic because Paul's writing it from prison in which it wasn't at all clear whether he was going to survive that prison sentence. Um, also, it's called the epistle of joy because, as one scholar put it, it's sister traits of peace and hope abound in this letter. You know, if you're really down, uh, Philippians will give you a lift because Paul is really inviting you to, to look more closely and more deeply at the incredible gift that you've been given, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Just, just an example of the joy in the letter. Paul prays with joy. Again, he's in prison. He prays with joy. He's thanking God for his circumstance of being in prison. He endures incarceration with joy. What he's effectively telling them is, I'm in prison and I'm filled with joy with the Lord. So, so should you all be. But one of the other reasons that he alludes to in the in the letter, is that he's in joy, uh, experiencing joy in incarceration because evidently some of the Roman guards were listening to Paul talk about Jesus and were finding themselves coming closer to, uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't tell us whether he baptized them or not, but there was enough response among the guards for Paul to experience joy in being in jail. Uh, he's instructing the Philippians with joy. It's very clear to Paul that his love for the people in the community is deeply rooted in their receptivity to the preaching that Paul gave them about Jesus Christ. And it's with joy that he continues to, to do that for people. Yeah, any, of the, any of the ministers here at St. Patrick's would tell you the same thing, you know, people who lead the RCIA or people who are doing catechesis with the kids and the youth program, and, you know, parents can say to them or the people themselves, thank you, thank you for that. And the response is, oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And it radically is. It radically is. I can tell you that if... 48 years as a priest, you know, giving absolution or anointing the dying, you know, or uh, just, just consoling somebody who's struggling with a faith issue. And they say, thank you, Father. Say, Boy, it's like you don't have an, a knowledge of whether they could know what a pleasure it is to serve them, you know, to help them come closer to the heart of Christ. So Paul's talking to them about having joy in instructing them about Jesus.
extraordinarily for Paul. It just, it's something that draws me to him. Paul exponders the possibility of death with joy. And he's not maudlin, but you know, he's looking at possibly a death sentence, which ultimately, not in, in Ephesus, but ultimately he did receive in Rome. But Paul's, what he's saying here is, if he dies, he will be with Christ, which is the greater good and which he longs to experience. But if he lives, he'll be able to continue the work which he considers unfinished, both with the Philippians and with other communities in Asia Minor. So, but Paul's thinking his way through this, not frightened of death, actually attracted to death, and considers it the better choice. But he's willing, if God spares his life, to be joyful about continuing his ministry. That's a really amazing phenomenon. So it's part of, and he admonishes them to live joyfully, to live joyfully and to choose it. Let me say a little bit more about that a little later this evening. Joy is not happiness. That's not what Paul is talking about. Joy is not happiness. Joy is a cognitive experience of knowing the deep truth that being in Christ, which we talked about with Ephesians last year, uh, 97 times in Paul's writing, he uses that phrase, in Christ. That's how he would describe himself. You know, he'd say, oh, I'm from Oklahoma, or, you know, or I'm a dentist, or whatever it may be. Paul would say, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. And, and, and that once one is baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, you are in Christ. You belong to Christ. You have a relationship with Christ, which is DNA level relationship. And when you know that, and you're aware of how incredibly graced you are with that relationship in Christ, joy abounds. Joy. I, I think of it always as a river underneath the life of a Christian, that there's a river of joy, no matter what else is happening. Christ, for example, on the cross was not happy, but he had joy because he was doing the will of his Father. And that's why uh, when Paul's talking about joy, it's linked to faith. Um, the word is charis, faith and joy are linked in the Greek word that he uses. And those who have received God's grace, charis, experience joy, which is kara. So it's, it's like they're so close together that if you have faith, that's a gift of God, that's grace from God, you have joy because of that, that reality. And to, um, to live joyfully is to choose it, to embrace it. Um, even in the midst of suffering, and Paul obviously is suffering when he experiences that. Um, I'm distracted by a, a man I anointed recently. It was an elderly fellow. He was in his 90s, and he had congestive heart failure. I'd known him for some time, and it was clearly coming toward the end. Now, he wasn't in hospice care, and he wasn't in bed. He was still dressed, but 
he was in heart failure. And I said, this is a war hero, by the way, in the Korean War. And I said to him, Ed, after I anointed him, I said, Ed, are you, are you okay with what's coming next here? How you doing with that? I was asking him if he had anxiety about dying. And he looked at me and he said, no, no, no. I'm looking forward to the next adventure in this journey with Jesus. That's what I mean, and that's what Paul meant by that, that sense of joy, that, that uh, it, it's, uh, it's a primary descriptor of someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ and who's in Jesus Christ. You know, you, you know when, you, when you hear about the Roman persecutions of Christians, right? The persecutions were not because they worshipped Christ as God and as the Son of God. That wasn't why they got persecuted. They got persecuted because they wouldn't worship the emperor of Rome as a god. The Romans had no problem with your having other gods. They're good with it. They have a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses. So the persecution didn't come because they worshipped Christ as God. It came because they wouldn't worship the emperor as God, a living divinity as he described himself. Paul tells them to have the mind of Christ. You know, um, there's, there's, a, there's a political phenomenon that's taking place too, and Luke will allude to that as well. Just a, a little quick uh, comment on the Roman phenomenon in which this stuff is crafted. In the Roman Forum, there was an altar to the god Janus. I'm not talking about the Janus Mutual Funds out of Denver. <laughs> the god Janus was a two-headed god. And the shrine to Janus in the Roman Forum had two doors, one on the back and one on the front to this shrine. And whenever Rome was at war, which was extensive, if, as you recall your history, both doors to the shrine of Janus were open. The only times those doors were closed was when Rome was at peace. The emperor, who was Octavius, known as Tiberius, known as Caesar Augustus, was the one who ushered in the longest period of peace in Rome's empire. And during the reign of Augustus, the doors of the Janus shrine were closed. And there is an altar, you can still see remnants of it, in Rome to Caesar Augustus Princeps Pacis, to Caesar Augustus, Prince of Peace. Well, isn't Luke tricky? You know, in his infancy narratives, 
and only Matthew and Luke give us infancy narratives. Mark begins with the baptism of John, and John's gospel begins with Cana at Galilee after the prologue. But Luke, you remember, hails Jesus as Wonder Counselor, Prince of Peace. And the message that Paul is giving and that Luke is giving is that it's not Caesar Augustus who is the Prince of Peace, it's Jesus Christ. And so when Paul is telling folks to have the mind of Christ, to put on the mind of Christ, it's that sense of fix the conflicts in the community because they're distracting from the peace that comes with joy in Jesus Christ, even under persecution or in the midst of other suffering and oppression. There's a political nuance in there. There's a hymn, if Kelly would throw it on the wall for us, there's a hymn that appears in the second chapter of Philippians, it's chapter, uh, chapter 2, 6 to 11. Uh, I want to invite you to read it with me, to, to pray it with me. This is a hymn, it's uh, referred to often in the, in the uh, breviary. It shows up at different points in the liturgical prayer of the church, the, the, uh, the divine office, as one of the three, either psalms or canticles, that are part of morning prayer or evening prayer. And it's, uh, it's every time it shows up in the, in the breviary, I always smile to see it, because it's, it's among the most important treasures the church has. Let's, uh, let's read it together first, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Please. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness. And found in human appearance, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a gorgeous, precious heritage of our church. And you know why? It doesn't come from Paul. Scholars tell us this may be the earliest testimony that we have about Jesus Christ, appearing within the first 10 years of Christianity. This is as far back as we get in terms of the faith of the early church. This was a common hymn that was prayed and was taught to uh, the faith communities that were established by the apostles, including Paul. This hymn is, is a magnificent testimony that, that summarizes, really, salvation history. It's an extraordinary thing. There are six verses there that we just prayed, 
The first three are about Jesus, and the last three are about God the Father. Just a couple of comments about these. And, and the, the way it's written, it's written poetically as the descent of Jesus and the ascent of Jesus given by God. That, that phrase that he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at is understood as a reference to Adam. Do you remember when the serpent tested Adam and Eve in the garden? They were told, if you eat of this fruit, you will be gods. You will be gods. That's what it meant about grasping at uh, the, the dignity and the status of God. That Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. In other words, Jesus took on lowly human form. That's a gorgeous concept. It's an important theological concept, more about which in just a moment. He emptied himself, which is going to become crucial in Paul's theology as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and then, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bend in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. You remember in the scriptures where it says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except under the Holy Spirit. It's one of the great privileges that we have. Uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes I've heard that giving Holy Communion, that somebody will say, Jesus is Lord. And I always feel like, you know, the response the church invites us to is amen. You know, the body of Christ, amen. Meaning, I'm willing to be the body of Christ. Not only that I believe this is the body of Christ, but to say Jesus is Lord is equally as powerful because it comes from the Holy Spirit to be able to say that. That hymn is the earliest testimony to Christ that we have. And he's inviting the Philippians by re repeating that hymn for them to live out that selflessness of Christ, Christ who emptied himself and should, should well up in the hearts of everyone who is in Christ. By the way, just parenthetically, you remember in Paul's theology that he says, in Christ, the way I described it earlier, and it's always the goal is to be with Christ, to be with Christ. And Paul believed. There are a lot of theologians after him that didn't teach that, Thomas Aquinas among them, but I like Paul's philosophy here. Paul's belief is this, those who die in Christ are with Christ immediately. Those who die in Christ are with Christ, and they share his risen life immediately. For Paul, there's no pause in between there. Just a little aside. This hymn that we just shared together 
alludes to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. It's one of the most significant monotheistic passages in the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures and refers originally to the worship of the God with four letters, Y-H-W-H, the unpronounceable name of God. Just to, before I t give you that text, one of the key things to know about the Jews and how they have maintained as a people, faith-wise I'm talking, is their belief in monotheism. They were the first monotheistic religion that we know of in history, a belief in one God, the God of Israel, the God of all creation. Like the Romans, many in the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent had multiple gods and goddesses. If you had a bowl of cereal this morning, you were worshiping a Mesopotamian goddess, Ceres, who was the goddess of fertility. Cornflakes are named for her. <laughs> that this was a common thing in the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent. The next culture next to the Jews that came into to monotheism were the Egyptians. There was an Egyptian pharaoh named Ichnaton. If you didn't know him well enough, you could call him Aminotep IV. That was his official name. He introduced monotheism into Egypt. Only it was worship of Aton, the sun god. In fact, I don't know if it's Psalm 104. It's somewhere in that range. There's a, there's a beautiful psalm in our Psalter that talks about the rising of the sun, riding on the clouds of heaven, you know, to its setting. In the west. It's a beautiful hymn. It was originally a prayer of praise to Aton, the sun god. Nomadic Jews wandering around in Europe hear this psalm and say, wow, beautiful hymn, wrong god. They lifted it, and it's now in the psalms. So this business about monotheism for the Jews is absolutely, hugely paramount. Listen to the text from Isaiah. This is God speaking. By myself I have sworn. I didn't swear on something else. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone forth righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. It's an incredible leap for those early Jews, not for, the, not for the Gentiles, but for the early Jews. It was an incredible leap to take this concept of one true God and ascribe that to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ as Son of God has equality with God. One God, three persons. Those are extraordinary, and that's why that hymn is so precious to us, that what has been ascribed to, to the God of Israel is now ascribed to Jesus. Beautiful hymn. Paul talks about the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. Put on the mind of Christ. For Paul, putting on the mind of Christ 
involved two Greek words, koinonia and kenosis. Let me spend a moment on that. For Paul, the gospel is much more than a set of beliefs. For Paul, it's a way of life. Koinonia is commonly translated as fellowship, and properly so. But for Paul, it's a fellowship of purpose, worth sharing, an example worth imitating. In other words, for Paul, it's not about private practice. There's not a Jesus and me relationship. It's always in the context of the community, the, the fellowship of the sisters and brothers of all ages who are in Christ. That koinonia, that common fellowship, a purpose worthy to be shared and an example worthy of imitation. That's a really rich concept and is an extraordinarily important concept for us. Church communities can really go off the track. You know, people, you've seen that in our country even, you know, in, in the East, when bishops by necessity have had to close parishes. The Bishop of Buffalo, New York told me, he said, Ray, if we ever had a huge tornado come through Buffalo, all the church steeples would be touching each other. They're only three blocks apart. You know, they were from the age when people walked to church. You know, it can't continue to sustain that world. But there were people who left the Catholic Church because their parish got closed. That's like leaving the church because you don't have bingo. <laughs> Stupid. That's not koinonia. That's the Elks Club or something. No, no, no disparagement on the Elks. In fact, they do more good than a lot of parishes do. It, koinonia is a community fellowship of purpose and example, helping each other be in Christ so that they could model that for the rest of the community. That's why Paul was upset that there were conflicts. He was upset with the Corinthians too. People were getting drunk who were rich and the, the poor were at the back of the community waiting for the Eucharist to begin. Paul is really angry about that, about uh, the, the, not just the disrespect of the body of Christ. He's really angry as, he, as he's nudging the Philippians too. If you are hassling with each other, you are not modeling for those who have not heard of Christ. That the community needs to be a community at peace. Koinonia. And he further believed that the gospel story of Jesus was replicated in each believer. That each believer will experience the suffering and the call to selflessness and pouring out as a libation one's life, a sacrifice of faith. It's characteristic for Paul of Christian communities that their concern is extra-tensive, that it's looking out for the last and the least, that the community's raison d'etre in witnessing to Christ is to do so with the ones that Jesus reached out to, the ones who were in need, the ones who were on the edges, 
the ones who not only need the good news, they may need food. They may need clothing. Paul holds up three examples. He wasn't, he wasn't shy of people who were doing koinonia already. Timothy, Epaphroditus, and himself. Epaphroditus was a member of the Philippian community whom they sent to Paul in prison. And while he was there visiting Paul, he got deathly sick uh, and, and very nearly did die. But uh, Paul praises God for healing, and he sends Aphroditus back to the community, probably with this letter. So that's koinonia. It's a beautiful, rich concept and one that can continue to nurture uh, both us individually in our relationship with Christ, but nurture us in our relationship with one another. The second, uh, the second word that sums up Paul's understanding of the mind of Christ is kenosis. And we saw that in the hymn. Uh, Christ emptied himself, open to God's grace. Paul himself uses an example in Philippians of his own kenotic service to God, his own kenosis. Paul emptied himself of the gains of his pharisaical rigor. Paul, as you know, was a deeply committed Pharisee who lived the letter of the law and insisted that everybody else do that. And that's why he was persecuting Christians early in the church, because they were not faithful to the law. He also had great status. Paul was highly regarded as a Pharisee, born a Pharisee. Obviously, he's also extremely well-educated. Do you know at the time of Jesus Christ in Palestine, only 3% of the population was literate, which you've got to believe included Jesus and Mary and Joseph, because the Galilee was the, hmm, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Paul was educated. He's multilingual as well. He gave all that up. And not only did he give it up, he said, I consider it as trash for the sake of Christ. All the knowledge that he had acquired, all the status that he had acquired, he emptied himself of that for the sake of Christ. Real kenosis for Paul meant this that he emptied himself of covenant membership under the law and received from God covenant membership through Christ, in Christ. That's astounding. Remember, for the Jews, that's how they, that's how they maintained was their identity as Jews. Paul emptied himself of covenant membership with God under the law and received from God covenant membership in Jesus Christ. The rest he considers trash. It's a purposeful emptying of self for Christ. Paul, in this letter, also describes what 
authentic righteousness is. You see, under the law, the belief clearly was if you followed the, the law, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, if you followed the Torah and were faithful to everything that it asked of you, you attained righteousness before God. Paul rejects that out of hand. He recalled that Jesus, Paul didn't make this up, it's because of Jesus. Jesus rejected three isms. Rigorism, legalism, and righteousness-ism. He rejected that. You know, that rigorism, that, that all the energy is going into that I have done this exactly and precisely as the law required. You know, the, the, you know what Jesus is, is just angry about was seeing the Pharisees who had parents who were in desperate need. And the law is really clear about honoring your father and your mother. And they would say the words korban over their money. And once it's been dedicated to God, can't be used for that. Uses for them. Jesus hated that. That rigorism, that literal interpretation of the law. And also that business about legalism. Do you, do you remember what Jesus warned about in, in uh, Luke's gospel just so profoundly? It's in Luke 6. He said, do not judge lest you be judged yourselves. Rather, be compassionate as your heavenly one is compassionate. He was sick of the judgments that he saw. You're unclean. You don't belong. You're not loved by God because you're poor. If I'm rich, I'm loved by God. If I'm healthy, I'm loved by God. If you don't have sons, you're not loved by God. Horrible. Judgment, judgment, judgment. They knew who fit. They knew who didn't fit. They knew who belonged. They knew who didn't belong. You know, within the last year, I was in a parish in Oregon. The pastor was sick. I filled in there for several weeks, weekends, because I teach. And one of the Eucharistic ministers came up to me in the sacristy before Mass, and he said to me, Father Carey, I want your permission. I thought, I'm not... I'm, what, do you want a hall pass? I don't, <laughs> I don't do permissions. And he said, I want your permission. He said, there is a gay couple in this parish, and I'm told that they are legally married, and they present themselves for communion. He said, I want your permission to refuse them communion. And I said to him, oh, I said, here's how we handle that. This is how we handle that. The body of Christ the body of Christ. And anything other than that, you should be removed from this ministry. Your Jesus says, do not judge. See what I'm saying? Jesus is really clear about this, and so is Paul. That legalism, rigorism. I've had people say to me, I saw so-and-so go to communion. I don't believe she has an annulment. I said, ah, oh, we got to get the diocese to send you all the records so you can make sure. What is this, you know? Not for Paul, boy. He's really clear about that. Uh, 
that they're antithetical to the kingdom of God as proclaimed by Jesus Christ. And Paul warns about those arguments of the Judaizers who, who are judging. You remember, they're the Jews who are Christians now, but they're laying uh, on the Gentile Christians all these isms. That's not the way of the kingdom. And you know what? It's easy for us to do that too. We can do that too. This isn't just an historical exercise. You know, we can, we can fall into, you know, if my prayers are just perfect, if my prayers are right, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm doing my Lenten, uh, whatever I'm doing for Lent, good on me. Did you all notice? <laughs> Truly, you know, that, that sense of like, that can creep back in that I can be the author of my own righteousness. I remember I saying evening prayer one night. I was in bed saying evening prayer, and I got one eye open and the other one half open, or half closed. And I didn't remember anything I'd read, and I just held the book up and saying, does this count? <laughs> got the book open. It, the righteousness is done. True righteousness comes from God through Jesus Christ to those who are in Christ. And all those our teach churches taught forever who follow their conscience, who follow their conscience. Even the beautiful sacrament of reconciliation can fall into this same problem that Paul's warning the Philippians about, that people can come to confession as somehow like a, a validation, you know, like that uh, now I'm good, I've done what I, you know, as opposed, confession never was about sin, it's about the mercy of God. It's about the incredible, loving mercy of God. Like lots of people have, have fallen into the trap of, oh my God, it's a memory test. You know, what else did I do? Oh my God, what did I do? Hey. Celebrate the Lord's love and the Lord's mercy. Rigorism, legalism, righteousnessism, self-righteousness. Basic danger. You know, one of the things that, uh, I remember this happened, I, may have shared this, but I remember this happened uh, when I was a seminarian. I was uh, uh, doing, a, I was working on construction in the summers, and on Sunday after Mass, the pastor, who knew I was a seminarian, uh, invited me in for uh, lunch. And this was on the Oregon coast. There are lots of pilgrims of the road on the Oregon coast, if you get my drift, who don't have RVs. <laughs> and this fellow came to the door and he said, Father, I used to be an altar boy in New York. You know, the regular story that every priest has heard 118 times a week. And he says, can you spare? I just need some money for some gas. And the priest, this was in his 60s, the priest pulled out his wallet and gave him a $20 bill, which is a lot of money in the 60s. He gave him a $20 bill and the guy saying, whoa, man. He said, Father, you're really a great priest. He said, I'll send it back to you. 48 years, I've never seen it ever come back. <laughs> he says, I'll send it back to you. He says, no, no, no. He says, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing this to get into heaven. I didn't know any theology, but I knew that's not right. That's not right. See what I mean? You can fall into that sense of like earning my own way. For Paul, there's an antidote to these isms. There's a way to prevent it. In fact, three ways to prevent it. The first way 
is by the Beatitudes. That's the antidote. You know, lovingly, I'm not coming out against Moses here, but if you keep the Ten Commandments, you haven't done much. Isn't that true? You've not done stuff, right? Yeah, you've not done things. But the Beatitudes just turn around and invite you into um, a forever of growing into Christ. How do you know when you reach the point where you're merciful enough, when you are single-hearted enough, you know, where, where you are uh, compassionate enough? The Beatitudes are the new charter of discipleship that Jesus gave us. That's our marching orders. Those are our guidelines there. There's a development of dogma there. That which is behind the Ten Commandments is reflected at the next level in the Beatitudes. That's the first one. And the second one is service to the neighbor. That's Paul's antidote to this. Instead of judging your neighbor, instead of giving a scorecard to your neighbor, serve your neighbor. Matthew 25 are the criteria for redemption for us. It involves food, it involves clothing, it involves visiting the sick and imprisoned, it involves comforting, it involves making stuff happen and starting with the last and the least. I remind you of the great, great wisdom of St. Teresa of Avila, doctor of the church. The little novices, the, the beginning Carmelite nuns in her Carmel, after time in contemplative prayer, would come to Teresa and they'd say, here's what happened in my, in my prayer. Was this of God? Did this come from God? You know, like, was this a real mystical experience I just had? And Teresa of Avila would always respond by saying, do you love your neighbor more than you did before that prayer? If you do, it was of God. If you do not love your neighbor more than you did before you began that prayer, that was not of God. It all comes back to that loving service of others. And thirdly, it's rejoicing in Christ and the kingdom of God that he proclaimed. Rejoicing in Christ and the kingdom of God that he proclaimed. I'll never forget, I did a little mystagogia day of recollection. That's the time, you know, between Easter and Pentecost in a parish. And the, the pastor had asked me, I had asked the pastor, I said, what do you want me to talk about? He said, oh, hell, I don't care, Ray. Anything you want. He said, I'm just dancing you in as a visual aid. <laughs> I said, a visual aid of what? And he said, of the wider church, you know, so that they don't think they joined St. Francis Xavier Parish. That's, that's a danger here because this is such a great parish. People think they're becoming St. Patricians, you know, instead of <laughs> Roman Catholics that belong to the whole church. And he said, I'm just dancing you in as a visual aid of the wider church for these folks. Well, at the lunch, I'm sitting across from a woman, a Jewess, who had been baptized. And I said to her, what's a good Jewess like you doing with all these Christians here? And she smiled at me and she said, you know, um, my son died of AIDS. And uh, during the period of time 
after he was diagnosed, before he died, he and several of his friends would come here to St. Francis because the community was one of the few places they could go where they were welcomed. You know, and people weren't afraid to shake hands with them. You know, that they, could, they, got, they got help. And she said, why am I here? Because your Jesus took care of my son. And now he's my Jesus. That's precisely what Paul was talking about when he's talking to the Philippians about uh, rejoicing in Christ and the kingdom that he proclaimed. Having that always focused and centered. Always, always knowing what you're talking about. I just had some dental work done and uh, my dentist was explaining what he was going to do and I said, sounds like you know what you're doing. He says, no, I make it up as I go, you know. <laughs> well, a Christian always got to know what it is that we're about, what it is that we do. And that's the heart of it. And Paul lays that out to the Philippians. I really believe you could do evangelization just from Philippians. What you need to know is here in this little four-chapter letter, which I hope you'll read. You know, um, a central argument in Philippians is this, theologically. All who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ are already demarcated as members of the family of Abraham with their sins forgiven. That's amazing. It's not repudiating the Hebrew Scriptures by any means or that covenantal relationship with God through circumcision and law. What it's saying is all who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus are already sons and daughters of Abraham. John the Baptist said it to those incensed Pharisees and scribes in the desert who said, we are sons of Abraham. God could raise up daughters and sons of Abraham from the rocks of this desert. That's, that's an amazing gift and, and grace. And you know what? It's not an IQ test. There's no theology exam to get into the kingdom of God or to belong to Jesus Christ. Several times during the year when I happen to find myself in a certain city on the East Coast, I fill in for a priest friend of mine who's a chaplain of a veterans hospital, and there are other... Uh, other people in that hospital as well. Oh my God, the poor guy, he's such a great priest. He's burying four, five, six, seven people a week. You can't do that week after week after week without having, you know, your life drained from you. There's no deacons there to do it for him. So anyway, one of the things that I love about doing the masses there is that when I give communion and you have to go out into the, because they're seated, you know, they're all seated, is that you know, you, you can put your shoulder, your hand on one of the shoulders of one of the old guys or old gals, you know, and they're, they're half awake and half out of it. And I say the body of Christ, and their tongue comes out. You know, I mean, they're not processing what day it is or where they are or what's going on, but they're so used to being in Christ that they receive that gift. And I, I love that. Some of them have Alzheimer's, body of Christ, tongue comes out. I love that. That makes as much sense to me as when the Pope receives communion, that we are in Christ. Good friend of mine, a priest up in Quebec, brilliant scholar, my God, he's lost more IQ points than I've ever had. 
<laughs> humble, humble priest. For a whole year, he's a religious, for a whole year, one of the old priests that he lived with, who was a peasant, a, a Quebecois peasant, you know, he, you know he, he got through the studies, but he didn't really fall for it. You know, he ran the tractors and did the mechanical stuff and was good at it. And he fell into Alzheimer's and was really down the spectrum in that. He couldn't find his room in the house. He didn't know the people. He couldn't look after his hygiene. You know, he was, he was totally... And here's this great scholar. And every day he wakes him up, he cleans him, he dresses him, he takes him down to, to the breakfast place because he couldn't find it on his own. And he'll, he would take him then to his office. He's working on uh, publications, and he gives him picture magazines to just, he can look at the same ones over and over, made no difference. And I said to him, my God, Father Gaston, I said, I really admire you for doing that for Father Bertrand. Oh, he went like Quebecer, you know. He said, Ray, he said, I have the privilege of washing the feet of Jesus Christ every day. For me, that summarizes what Paul is saying in Philippians. I have the privilege to wash the feet of Jesus Christ every day. Those are some thoughts. Follow the joy. It's the best wisdom I've ever learned from St. Paul. Follow the joy. And the older I get, and the more I, I find that desire to know Jesus Christ, the less time I have for cynicism and sarcasm, which will erode the fabric of joy more quickly than anything in a community. It will destroy koinonia in a community. But if you, if you set out, you set your sail to follow the joy, and no matter what comes in your life and all the pain that does come, and suffering. The gospel is replicated in each believer that you choose to follow the joy that you are in Christ and that your whole life in service to others is vectored to be with Christ for all eternity. I'm going to thank you for coming. I want to thank Father Eric for the invitation. Uh, as always, I never take that for granted. But I also want to thank him for, and you for making me do the research for this tonight. Uh, I got closer to the Lord because of that, and I'm really grateful to you for that and want to share that with you. Thank you for coming. Tomorrow night, we're going to do forgiveness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast Weekly Mass Readings. We are Christian Disciples in Mission, providing this service to strengthen your experience at Mass.